Good morning and welcome to my Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast for our community for this Friday. And uh, it's a beautiful day here in Milan. Um, I'm off traveling at the weekend to go see the kids in Bavaria. Um, I might have them sit in while I do this next week. And rest assured as we travel throughout March, which is going to be crazy busy, as I go in order, if I can do it, let's see if I can do it, to Singapore, Sydney, London, of uh, the Villa Dest in Lake Como, and then on to Dubai um, in April. So we are hitting the road. I feel like I'm running for president. Um, we will be doing this on the road, but I will not miss a week with our community. I love thinking with you guys, and it's been a great help to my work to think aloud and together. So as I promised this week, we're going to do our political risk jazz riff, as has been requested by a number of you. Thank you, Terry. And others who uh, really like it when I just talk without notes and see where we go. Uh, last week, we looked at the big three problems facing the world, which are Ukraine getting out of hand through Crimea and tactical nukes, uh, the China, the Sino-American Cold War coming to a head over Taiwan if the United States can't skillfully see off Chinese adventurism over that new Berlin of our new Cold War, Taiwan. And then the uh, central banks, the Fed and the others losing control of inflation and inflation, as, as the numbers showed last week, proving far stickier than people thought it would be, except for us and people like Larry Summers. There were a few of us who got it right, but I'm proud that we were right on all three of those calls for the major risks of the world. But as I've bemoaned often, one of the problems with political risk is its very name. It's, a na it's by nature a gloomy idea. Risk means how do I avoid something? How do I stop something bad from happening? The best you can do is navigate stormy seas. You don't control the seas. You can merely navigate them. And that is half the job, is, is for businesses and governments showing the dangers out there and showing how these problems might be overcome. And that's an incredibly useful thing to do. And rest assured, most of my clients um, and businesses, as you can guess right now, booming, most of my long-term clients who I love working with closely were in a good enough position now that we only work with people that we you know, like. It's the Brian Wilson thing. Once you've done the surf music, you just want to compete with the Beatles. And we've done the surf music for a long time and done it well. Now we want to make pet sounds. And I love working with so many clients who, who really do want to be creative and get this right, as opposed to so many of our competitors to, to jump on board our 80% call rate and make it something more like 90 or even perfect, if, if, if possible, or close to perfect, as we can manage. And so we spend a lot of time on those big three negatives. And rest assured, I'll spend over the next month and a half an awful lot of time thinking about them. I would imagine next week, for instance, that we spend our time talking about the Ukraine war, because it'll be the first anniversary, and anniversaries are a good, good chance to think through things and where we are. But while this is true, we never spend enough time focusing on the positive that I and I love when I travel to Asia because it reminds me of the American West in about 1880, 1890. There are an awful lot of things going wrong in the 1880s in the United States. You still had Indian Wars. You had you had territories rather than states. You had very shaky rule of laws. The Earp brothers would testify to in Tombstone. Wyatt, Morgan, and Virgil would testify to fighting the Clampets, the Cowboys, as they were known at the time. There's shaky rule of law. There aren't state boundaries. There are Indian wars going on. People are playing robber barons or playing fast and loose. 
All this is true, but the West was still growing at 8, 9, 10%. It was booming. And all these problems would be seen to over time. When you go to the Indo-Pacific, that's how you feel. There's an awful lot that needs fixing. And India, which we're going to get to in a minute, is a few generations away from being a superpower. But you can feel the energy. You can feel the dynamism. You can feel the 8, 9, 10% growth out there. And in political risk, because it's been so centered on Europe and America, Europe growing at a big fat zero over the last 20 years, where Italian GDP is roughly the same as it was before they entered the euro. And in the United States, if we get 2% growth, Joe Biden would have a victory parade and would win the presidency again, a fact unlikely to happen this time. Uh, that You've got sclerotic at, at worst and moribund at best established economies where you're not going to get real rates of growth, where they're not these big opportunities that there are out in the wider world. And one of the great things that's happened is that we're starting and being forced to look at opportunities and not just solving problems, but embracing opportunities that are out there that can transform our world. Looking at the bright side, which I love to do in the business by nature, I'm still fascinated by the world. I'm still positive about the world. And it's an awfully big place, bigger than just the United States and Europe. And so today we're going to look at three opportunities that can transform our world. If we looked at the risks last week, today in the Jazz Riff, we're going to look at the rewards that are out there. And to start at the biggest possible level, uh, again, you have to look at these emerging markets. And Jim O'Neill and the Goldman Sachs guys uh, got it right in terms of marketing, but got it wrong in terms of putting the BRICS together. This idea that they came up with a generation ago of lumping Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa together. The idea behind it was solid that while we spend all our time worrying in particularly strategy in military and political matters about the established world, the G7 countries of Japan, Europe and the United States, this wider world is where the action is, is where the growth rates are going to be. From a very low base, these are the places that are going to be growing in the future, and this is where we should be focusing our time and energy, because this is economically at the macro level where you're going to get the big rates of growth, and where at the micro level, Western investment should spend its time looking for companies in this area, areas that are going to have such amazing macro growth. And all of that is absolutely on the money and true and was a very useful intellectual corrective for all the things going on before uh, where we had not spent nearly enough time thinking about these things. And uh, the O'Neill correction was very useful. The specifics are wrong. He lumped together a bunch of countries that beyond what I've said have almost nothing in common. Why in the world Russia, which was a demographically aging corrupt gas station with nuclear weapons should be lumped with vibrant, booming economies such as China and India doesn't make any sense. The only thing they have in common is that they're not part of the G7, the West as we've known it. Um, and so to look at them in that way made some sense. But to look more broadly, so I didn't, that didn't work. South Africa has very little to do with what went on. And then the other problem with the BRICS idea, besides the odd specific lumping of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, which don't have a whole lot in common, the other odd point is that it assumed a certain amount of historical determinism that all these countries would head in the same direction. 
that the outcome for all of these countries would be roughly the same, that they would boom well into the future, that nothing would go wrong with any of them, and that they would all be successes. Well, history doesn't work like that. Some countries that are hopeful, just like some people that are hopeful, make it. Some do okay, and some do badly and are a great disappointment. If you look at Brazil, Russia, India, and China, you'd say that the jury is still out on Brazil, though with the coming of Bolsonaro, the seeing off of the quasi-coup, and Brazil as, as an entrepot of just vast natural resources moving forward, that the trajectory in Brazil is still very positive. Russia, that's not what I would say about Russia. The trajectory is terrible given the endemic corruption, given the terrible demography, and is a highly able central bank that has seen off worldwide sanctions against it so that it's, it's averted the worst. But this is not a country that I think is on a positive trajectory. Russia, as I've said many times, is dangerous, but dangerous because it's declining, not because it's growing. India, 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 we're going to get to admit it, is just positive after positive. When I run out of positive things to say at a meeting, I always stammer out the word India, and you'll be right. India is the only country, major power in the world, that has demographic catch-up growth. It has a young population that's about to take off, much as China took off after Deng Xiaoping's reforms in December 1978. So when you run out of positive things to say, stammer out the word India. China, Despite all its many problems, if it avoids suicidal war or adventurism over Taiwan, I think a positive but case can be made, but a tampered case. This is not the future. China's already peaked, as we've said, but it's not. its growth rates aren't going to go to nothing either. And South Africa is a basket case, horribly run, with every resource that ought to make it, but they can't literally keep the lights on. So I've just described five very different trajectories, so lumping them all together in a historical deterministic way really hasn't worked at all. And that, if we look at the specifics of the O'Neill-Goldman idea of BRICS, it's been a failure. If we look at the general idea, though, it's been a success, because if you add in emerging markets and even frontier markets, you're going to get very high rates of failure, very high rates of the frontier of absolute collapse. But you're also, if you can pick your ponies right, going to get very high rates of growth. And if you look at the emerging world, the Kennedy world, where John Kennedy used his father's vast fortune in the 1950s when he became a senator to go see the world, to educate himself as to how it smells and sounds and the colors and the people and the tastes and the vibrant differences, that was true in 1950. It's more true in 2020. If you look at the more populous countries in the world other than the United States, you get areas like Mexico, which is fascinating and ought to do better as we onshore more and more. That will help because these, these jobs won't go back to the United States or Canada. Many of these manufacturing jobs are going to come back to Mexico, and it will do awfully well if it can just get through AMLO. Um, if you look at Brazil, as we've mentioned, um, which ought to be doing even better than it is, but now has a chance to really take off. If you look at Factory Asia, the countries around China that have now done better than China because of what's going on. If you look at Vietnam, the ASEAN countries that are picking up those lowest manufacturing jobs that used to reside in China and are now migrating through both geopolitical risk, but also they've priced themselves out of the market to factory Asia, you see an area that's booming and will continue to boom from Vietnam through ASEAN and down to places like Cambodia, Thailand, etc., which will do awfully well. 
um, going forward in the Indo-Pacific. India, which is the next great superpower to take off and will soon be moving up the t table, will be third or fourth largest economy in the world. It now has the most people. It has demographic catch-up growth. Uh, we'll, we'll get back to that in a minute. You look at places like Turkey. You look at places like Indonesia. Um, this developing broader world, what used to be called in the 1950s, the third world. Yes, it has to be differentiated, as I said. Yes, and at the frontier level in Africa, which is demographically going to take off in the next generation. There are going to be an awful lot of failures, an awful lot of calamities, but an awful lot of successes as well. If you talk to firms like mine who can go to that level of granularity as to what's going on. And so the BRICS idea the idea that make it larger, the Kennedy idea of emerging markets, what used to be the developing world, what used to be called the third world. There are an awful lot of winners that can be picked from losers. They won't all head in the same direction, but if you can get that right, boy, are you on to a winner. Um, and so that's that's got to be the first positive out there, that we need to look at this as an immense opportunity in the next generation for businesses out there. I have one client, I won't name them, that, that's entirely intelligently stake themselves on this. And in particular, my second point, my poster child for this idea is India and has to be. As I've said, it has catch-up growth. It's the only major great power in the world with demographic catch-up growth coming at it. And this is a wonderful thing. I remember saying to leading Indian uh, decision makers in the BJP, uh, the party in power of Narendra Modi, look, and notice the qualifying words I, I used, Look, if you are moderately more competent than the Congress party has been, if you're moderately less corrupt, if you're moderately more pro-stable, and if you're moderately more pro-business, your inherent 6% growth, and look at the difference between zero and two, because of demography alone, you're going to grow at about six. If you do this a little better, just a little better, it'll be eight. And if you're actually really good at this, like Deng Xiaoping was a generation before in China, this number will go from six to eight or 10% growth a year. Yes, India, like the Wild West, has all kinds of problems. It's too sclerotic, too bureaucratic, too statist, too corporatist, too top down. It has corruption. Uh, it, has, it needs to have less and better rules, but saying all that, we're looking at 6% growth bottom if nothing much happens. If they do reasonably better, it's 8, and if they're actually good at this over time, it's 10. And with the Modi government, despite all the cheerleading against the Modi government that occurred uh, because they don't like that it's a populist right-wing government and the people who do media in the West are not populist, nor are they right-wing and that's why they don't like the Modi government. But he is surprised on the upside with stability in India. He's won absolute majorities twice and is on course to do so again. His opposition, the Congress Party, despite Rahul Gandhi's recent walk around the country, remains shattered. And Modi looks set to win a third term. So they have the magic elixir of political stability, the magic elixir of demographic stability. They are geostrategically siding toward the West because they, like the West, fear Chinese adventurism, and the Chinese made a colossal error in bullying them along the line of actual control in the high Himalaya. Think a good Kipling novel, think Kim, where in China and India bump into each other along an undemarcated border. The Chinese adventurism along this border in the last couple of years has thrown the Indians into America's 
waiting arms, which can only be for the good moving forward as a great power that will be a superpower and the world's ordering superpower get closer and closer and closer to one another. Uh, they speak English, which helps for Western investors. They believe in rule of law because of the colonial background, which is, of course, a mixed blessing. But as Neil Ferguson rightly says, an empire has an awful lot of positives in terms of rule of law. And the areas run by the British Empire have done better than run by the French Empire that did not impose rule of law. So you have rule of law, you have English, you have good geostrategic ties to the West ever growing. Uh, you have demographic stability, you have political stability. This is the recipe for closer to 8% than 6 They've done better than the bottom growth per year, per year at the macro level. So there's ever-growing micro-level opportunities for Indian companies. Yes, they're going to be hiccups. Yes, they're going to be problems. Yes, like the Wild West, they're going to be years where this goes into reverse. But if you look at the longer-term generational trajectory India is going to be a superpower. This is good news for the rest of the world. This is great news for investing and for stability. And so India is an opportunity that's going to transform the world. And that would be the second uh, positive I would put. And then the third positive, which comes from the first two, is the alliance structure of the world. And I think, I think we underestimate this. Neither, you know, I one time I took a trip around the world. I did two war games out in out in Asia. And so the plane just kept going. I mean, there were three, actually. There was one. I forget even now where they were. I think there was one in Singapore, one in Hong Kong, and then one in Bombay. So they just kept going from Mumbai. I went back to London um, and then onward. So I literally went around the world in just about over, just over a week, seven some days. And I basically lived on the plane and your body had no idea where it was. But it was an incredible experience to do this Jules Verne trip of 80 days and do it only in seven. And just to see how immense the planet is. I kept staring out the window. It just went on and on and on. So whatever the superpower, the one lesson we're sure of from history is that no one country has ever managed to dominate the whole of the world. It's just too big. And that will never happen. It hasn't happened in three to 4,000 years of recorded history. I have to say four, just being back from Egypt. 4,000 years of history. No one country, however powerful, however mighty, has ever conquered the world. I think of the great Breaking Bad episode, Ozymandias, where they quote the poem from Percy Bush Shelley. And the idea of Ozymandias is that these great Assyrian Hittite, Egyptian empires that came before, however great, were ground to dust, that no one ever can conquer the whole of the place. And that remains true for both the United States, for all its might, and for the rising might of China, the two superpowers in, in, in competition to order the world right now. The United States is the ordering power, and the presumptuous challenger to the heavyweight champion is China. That means you're going to need friends. It means you're going to need allies. It means you're going to need allies at that second level down. And if you look at the alliance structure at the second level down, it, it overwhelmingly favors the United States if it could just simply get its act together. Before the Ukraine war, you had the US and China competing, and then in that great power area beneath it, you had the Anglosphere totally on side with the United States, um, which was great, meaning the English-speaking world that comes out fighting together, Butch Cassidy and Sundance. We bicker, we fight, but we shoot the Bolivian army together. Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the United States, um, and the UK do. And you had that, that grouping, the Anglosphere, firmly on America's 
side. You had Japan firmly on America's side. Uh, you had India increasingly on America's side uh, because of the reasons I've said being bullied by the Chinese. And then you had the EU in the middle uh, being economically through Germany and its, its dependence on Russian gas for inputs and Chinese uh, markets for outputs for exports. You had them in an increasingly neutralist position and Russia trying to avoid being Robin to China's Batman, tilting toward China and also neutralism being the options, where Germany and the EU were tilting toward America with neutralism being the other option. After the start of the Ukraine war, you have this system change in three ways. India has moved globally to a more neutralist position, and we'll get back to that in a minute. But in the Indo-Pacific remains strongly pro-American, and the larger world is trying to remain non-aligned. I don't think that's a sustainable policy. To quote the great Johnny Mercer, something's got to give there one way or the other. But at the moment, that's India's position. Pro-American, pro-Western in the Indo-Pacific and neutralist in the wider world. So there's that. You have, on the other hand, the EU flying back to the uh, under the wing of American protection without an army, without a foreign policy, things they didn't think they needed arrogantly. They now are, are where they do need. And you have Russia now firmly wearing those ugly tights and being Robin to China's Batman being the junior partner in that coalition. You have those three movements. And this leaves the world with the Anglosphere and Japan still on America's side, with the EU now on side versus an, an alliance system of Russia and China and with India somewhere in the middle, though, drifting toward the West. This is overwhelmingly a pro-American setup, both within the Indo-Pacific, with things like um, the setting up of the Quad with Japan and India and Australia and the United States. You have a pro-American tilt on the alliance system of the world. And if America can do the boring but absolutely necessary toiling in the vineyard of alliance management, that's a world that's going to stay pro-American at the moment. It was true before the war. It's even better after. I would trade Russia for the EU any day of the week, um, as the Chinese are glumly aware of this too, that this is a good trade. And so again, the alliance structure of the new era suits the United States if we bother doing the very difficult day-to-day -day business. And yeah, you can pull your hair out. I've been dealing with the Europeans my whole adult life for my sins. But as Eisenhower put it, it's better. The only thing worse than having allies is not having allies. And it's great that they're on side. And so we have to remember that this entire alliance structure suits the United States. There is only one but at the end of this statement. And I would leave all this good news about the emerging markets and BRICS, India, and the alliance structure. I would leave it with this Kennedy warning. At the level below these great powers, you see a decided neutrality. You see countries, even when they see Russian military aggression, opting for neutralism over Ukraine. You see at the regional level, nine of the 10 most populous countries in the world, all of them except the United States with the market exception of the United States are neutral. Countries over Ukraine, countries like Brazil, Argentina, Mexico, Indonesia, India, China, and into the Gulf states, countries like Saudi Arabia, normally an ally, not an ally over this at all, uh, tired of the Biden administration belittling their leadership, particularly Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, they've now bit the hand that up until now had fed them because they're humiliated and they're now opting for a more neutralist position as they go, which makes entire realist sense. So you have the Middle East increasingly neutralist. You have Turkey behaving in a neutral way. Mexico, Brazil, Indonesia, 
and this is a real danger that to take this emerging market world for granted when it's showing it's neutralist, it doesn't want to be naturally, if you're a regional power, you don't want to be in the pocket of either superpower. You want the maximum freedom of maneuver. That's math. That's how geopolitics works. But the United States, as Jack Kennedy did, has to go about the business of beginning to cultivate these countries, talking to them. Because the alliance structure at the great power level is so on America's side, at this next regional level, the United States has to work very, very hard at winning over the future of the world rather than just the present. At the present, the United States has a huge advantage in terms of alliances. But the regional emerging market powers of the world, the future of the world, the United States has a lot of work to do. But then again, what I've just presented you with through the BRICS, through India, and through the alliance structure is an awful lot of good news. These are three opportunities that could transform our world and do so for the better. Thank you very much. That was great fun. I love doing these and may continue them as they are fun and encouraging and let me think out of the box. Um, for those of you who have subscribed, thank you so much. And again, business is booming on our Substack community. Those of you who haven't subscribed, please do so and please do give. We're only asking for $70 a year, $7 a month to give you this very different take from the mainstream media on the, on the world. It's more than Ukraine, the world. And we need to see it as it is because there are glittering opportunities out there as I'm about to hit, hit the road uh, and we'll be seeing them face to face, which keeps my thinking fresh and wider than the tiny little European-American transatlantic world we've lived in for too long. Let's break out of that box and see these opportunities. Come with me and I'm only asking $70 a year or the price of the espresso I'm about to make. Take care. Have a great weekend. And it's on to Bavaria.